0: So today we are going to conclude this kind of little mini-series that we've been doing, uh, looking at the metaphors of Paul from 2 Corinthians, uh, and we're going to explore what does it mean to be uh, a jar of clay. But before we do, uh, I just want to revise what we've looked at uh, the last couple times that we've uh, explored 2 Corinthians, And so over the past few weeks, uh, we've been seeing how uh, the biblical authors commonly used metaphors in their writings uh, because they are a powerful linguistic tool. uh, And it helps us as the readers to comprehend these deep truths by comparing them to something that we're familiar with. Uh, whatever it may be. And the Bible is full of these metaphors, like the Lord is my shepherd. And so we understand that a shepherd provides care and protection to his sheep. And therefore, God does the same to us when we apply that metaphor to him. Uh, or we are called to be salt and light in the world. Or Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. And, you know, you, a branch can't be disconnected from the vine or else it dies. So there are, there are many, many metaphors throughout the Bible. It's full of them. And studying them provides a a richer and a fuller understanding of these biblical truths. And so we started our series by looking at 2 Corinthians 2.15, where Paul talks about us being a Christ-like fragrance. And we saw that because of this connection between our sense of smell and and our, our memories and our emotions, that this is a very powerful and invoking kind of metaphor for Paul to use. We also looked at how it it highlights, it emphasizes the the paradoxical nature of the gospel, because to some we will smell of life, but to others we will reek of death. And we see this throughout the gospel message, that for some the cross um, is the power of God, and for others uh, it brings shame, and and it's something that um, is foolish in their eyes. And likewise, to some Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and to others he's a stumbling block. And so this is the paradoxical nature of the gospel message. And so if we're ever rejected because of of Jesus, it's not something that we should be offended by or take personally. This is just the reality of what we've uh, signed up for. And so in becoming a fragrance of Christ, uh, we looked at the process of infusion, how it is through immersing ourselves in God and soaking in his presence Uh, allowing him to become infused into every part of our life is how we become this Christ-like fragrance. And then this fragrance is dispersed through heat. So when we experience the, the trials and the difficulties of life, when the refining fire of God comes upon us, this is when the fragrance of Christ is most evident in our lives. And Paul finishes this kind of thought about saying, who is adequate for such a task? And the reality is, in and of ourselves, no one is. No one is adequate for this. It's only in and through Jesus that we are adequate for such a task. It's only in him that we become a Christ-like fragrance. A couple of weeks later, we then looked at 2 Corinthians 3 verse 2, where Paul uses the metaphor of a letter from Christ to describe the life of a believer. And so we saw that just as Paul and, and, and many of the traveling ministers of that time would use these letters of recommendation in order to kind of uh, prove their, their authority and, and validate their credentials, that our transformed lives are like a living letter uh, that validates the power and authority of Jesus And not that he needs us, uh, needs our validation in any way, but we are kind of walking evidence that Jesus really is who he says he is when people read the letter of our life. And so he talks about us being Christ's ambassadors, and we are the representatives of Jesus in this world. And so therefore, we need to share of the faithfulness of God in our lives. Uh, We need to share about um, our testimonies because there's power in our testimonies, and and we looked at how there's power to do it again, as the Hebrew word for testimony implies. And so it's awesome to hear Matt's testimony and to hear more testimonies of what God has done, which then invokes the Holy Spirit to to do it again. Um, And there's power in declaring God's faithfulness in our lives. And so the way that we share our testimonies is through our words, but also through our actions, that what we say and what we do needs to align, otherwise we misrepresent Jesus in our actions. And so people should see the fruits of a transformed life, even if we never have an opportunity to share with them or to say anything. Uh, it should be evident in the way that we live. And so that's just a quick recap of what we've looked at. And today we're going to finish things by looking at what does it mean to be a jar of clay? And so I'm going to read all of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and then we'll hone in to that specific verse. So starting in verse 1, it says this, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways, and we do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. But on the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. And since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All of this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so Father, as we come and and we open your word and we read today, I pray that you would breathe upon these words that you would give life to what we read, Father. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the understanding to, to know what your word is saying and, and to give us knowledge and how to apply what it's saying to our lives and, and the wisdom to actually do so, to work these things out, to not just be hearers, but to be doers of your word. And so, Father, we commit this time to you. Holy Spirit, you are the great teacher. Come and teach us your truth. In na- your name we pray. Amen. So, of all the metaphors that we've looked at so far, um, this probably has to be one of my favorite. And one thing that all these metaphors have in common is this reminder that it's not about you and me, that it's about him. And so we are a Christ-like fragrance, right? We're not an Andrew-like fragrance. Uh, We are a letter from Christ, not a letter from Frank or from Matt or anyone else. And you are a jar of clay to show that this surpassing power is from God, not from you or from me. So before we look at what does it mean to be a jar of clay, I just want to uh, draw our attention to verses 3 and 4, because Paul gives us insight into the cause of a problem that we still see to this day. And so in verses 3 and 4, Uh, Paul is continuing something that he began back in chapter 3, and remember that chapters and verses are a modern invention, that when Paul wrote this, he didn't have it broken up into sections, uh, that it was just one big flowing letter, and so he's talking about in chapter 3 that those who don't know Jesus live with like a veil over their hearts and their minds that impairs their ability to know the truth of who Jesus is. And so he's talking about uh, the surpassing glory of the new covenant versus the old covenant. But even in the old, there was such glory that Moses had to put a veil over his face for the sake of the Israelites. And so he talks about how that even though Moses is dead and gone, this veil still remains to this day upon those that read what Moses wrote. Uh, and it's because they haven't received the freedom that comes when you enter into relationship with Jesus. So, and that's where you get that's where we get that verse that the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's the context of that verse that we know so well. And so this is something that Paul um, talks about in some of his other letters, uh, such as Romans chapter 11. Uh, he talks about this partial, partial hardening that has come upon the Jewish people. And, and if we've been blessed in their partial hardening, how much greater will things be uh, when all of them come to know the truth of who Jesus is? And so this is what he's talking about, and he continues to expand on it in chapter 4, but he explains that this isn't just an impairment upon the Jewish people alone, but this is a complete blindness, a global blindness that is on all unbelievers, that's been inflicted by Satan, uh, who is in this temporary position of leadership over the earth or rulership. And so, this explains today that why, in spite of all of the evidence, and for us it just seems so obvious, you know, there is uh, historical evidence and scientific evidence and archaeological evidence and textual evidence and testimonies and first uh, uh, hand accounts and witnesses of, of the truth of who God is. And yet, the majority of people still deny his existence and still deny that he is God. And they hold fast to whatever the lies are that they tell themselves. This is why. Uh, And it was present in Paul's time, and it is certainly present in our time today. And it's because Satan has inflicted this global blindness upon unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, as Paul says. And really, this shouldn't come as a surprise to us because we know the nature of Satan. We know that he is the the father of lies and that his sole purpose is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And so, of course, he's going to do everything and anything that he can to prevent people from knowing the truth and the freedom that is found in Jesus. And God's response to this situation is to place his treasure the light of God, the gospel message, and his Holy Spirit inside jars of clay, inside you and me. This is how God chooses to respond to the situation that's at hand. And so what does this metaphor teach us then? Well, firstly, I think it is intentionally a, kind of a, a pointing back to another popular metaphor that we're familiar with. In Isaiah 64 verse 8, that says, You, O Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. And so we know that jars of clay, they have a designer, and they have a specific purpose. Uh, They have a design in mind. And so likewise, God has designed us, that he has shaped us and formed us and molded us into who we are with a specific purpose and design in mind, like Matt was saying, just like a potter does with his clay. And so the process of pottery making, I think, is something that we can learn a lot of spiritual truths about. And so you may not be familiar, nor was I until I watched a bunch of videos and, and did some research. Um, does anyone do pottery? No, it's, it's one of those things that probably very few people do, but it's, it's really cool. So there are, there are five steps that is uh, kind of followed when it comes to pottery. And so the first one is you have to choose the right clay. So there are different types of clay that possess different properties, uh, and these are suited to different pottery techniques. And so understanding the different characteristics of the different types of clay is really important depending on what you want to make. Uh, And so basically the potter will choose a clay that will suit the design that they have in mind, because not all clay is suited for everything. And so this week I was I was talking to Shirley, who who spoke a couple of weeks ago, um, about what I wanted to share, and she started kind of unpacking these things for me. And she said, "Doesn't it remind you of what Paul says in Romans eight? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son." And so God had a specific design in mind, and he foreknew before we were even born that we possessed those characteristics and properties that were necessary in order for us to become the design that he had in mind, in order to achieve his desired results. So choosing the right clay is very important. Then they, uh, they do this process which is called wedging. And so this happens where the potter kneads and compresses the clay in order to remove any of the air bubbles that are in the clay and ensure that there's consistency throughout the clay. And doing this is incredibly important because it improves the workability of the clay and it makes it easier to then shape and to design it and to then sculpt it, which is the next step, sculpting. So the potter has chosen the clay, he has wedged the clay, and now he begins to sculpt, begins to shape it into the desired di- design, either through two techniques, um, hand building or throwing. Throwing is where you see it on that cool wheel that spins around. Um and whatever process they choose, the potter has to apply pressure to the clay in order to shape it correctly. Uh, and these processes sound like what Paul is saying in verses eight and nine, that we are hard pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed, that God uses the trials and the difficulties of our life to apply pressure in order to shape us into the design that he has in mind. And these things are necessary in order to achieve that shape. And so once it's been sculpted and shaped and it looks how the potter wants it to look, uh, it has to be dried and trimmed. And so the piece is carefully dried in order to remove any excess moisture left in the clay. And this is an incredibly essential part of the process because it prevents uh, the clay from cracking when it's then put into the fire. And during the stage, the potter will trim the piece a little bit more to further refine its shape uh, and will add any decorative details too. And to me, this kind of speaks of like a a wilderness experience, a season of, of dryness that many of us have faced throughout our life where we just feel particularly distant from God and just spiritually dry. And these can be very hard and and discouraging times that cause us to question and to wonder what's going on. Uh, but I like what John Bevere says. He says that God uses the wilderness to shape you so that the promised land doesn't break you. See, God will use our wilderness experience, those times of dryness to prepare us to to draw out any excess moisture that would actually cause us to crack when we go into the fire. Uh, And it's also a time where he will expose things in us that aren't necessary, that need to be trimmed and removed in order to further refine us into that design that he has in mind. And so once the piece is dried and trimmed, it's then put into the fire in order to harden the clay and to make it usable. And so the refining fire of God is something that we talked about Uh, We looked at the fragrance of Christ, that it's only through heat and fire that that fragrance is dispersed. And so it's necessary for this uh, piece of pottery to go through the fire. It's essential because otherwise it's unusable. It's not worth much if it remains wet and damp and unusable. And so it has to go through the fire in order to complete the design process. And so these are the five steps that uh, potters often use in creating their different pieces of pottery. And the reality is that we often go through this process time and time again throughout our lives, that it's not a a one-time thing like you do with a jar, but it's a lifetime process of wedging and sculpting and drying and trimming and firing and maybe a little bit more sculpting, a little bit more drying and trimming um, over and over again, but Thankfully, God doesn't wait until we are complete and perfect before he uses us, right? Before he places that treasure that Paul talks about inside of us. Because God will and he wants to use you now in all of our incompleteness, in all of our imperfection, in all of our fragility, uh, God still wants to use us. And so something that we learn from Paul's metaphor is that the purpose of a jar of clay is to be a vessel that we have been designed by our potter to carry his light, to carry the message of the gospel, and to carry his Holy Spirit. That's the purpose of a jar, is to be a vessel, a container. And so in ancient times, jars of clay uh, had many different purposes. They were used for cooking, they were used for storing food or liquids, such as water or wine or oil. Um, And to my surprise, they were often used to hold treasure. So apparently, it was pretty common to keep your valuables inside a jar of clay. I just assumed you would use something like a treasure box or you know a jewelry box of some form if you're going to put your treasure somewhere. But the reason why they would often use these clay jars is because one, they were commonplace, so they were readily available, uh, and two, they were unassuming to a thief <laughs> or an invader. If you had a room full of jar jars, you know who's to say which one has valuables and which one just has other things in it. And then thirdly because they are particularly um, efficient at protecting the contents from the elements and they can be sealed, they can have a lid and put tar or some form of wax on them and seal the contents inside and protect them. And so in 1947 there were some Bedouin boys that were shepherding their goats uh, in the hillsides of Qumran by the Dead Sea and goats have a tendency to wander And so it's common practice for a shepherd to hit something with their stick or to throw something in order to get the goat's attention and to bring them back into the flock. And so these boys had lost some goats, and so they found some caves and they threw a rock into the cave. But instead of hearing the the goats returning to them, they heard the smashing of pottery. And so upon investigation, they found this collection of clay jars, and within these um, jars were the famous Dead Sea Scrolls that many of you would know. And these are the writings that um, were written over 2,000 years ago before um, Jesus' time that confirm the accuracy of our our translation of our Bibles today, that basically what we have today is exactly the same as what they were reading 2,000 years ago. And it's considered to be one of the greatest discoveries of the 20th century, an incredible find. And something that I find really fascinating about this story is that even though these scrolls were incredibly well-preserved for over 2,000 years, and it's, it's almost a miracle that they lasted that long, is no one cares about the clay jars that were responsible for preserving them, right? <laughs> when you go to the museum in Israel, you don't go to see the jars. You go to see the contents, the scrolls that were hidden within them. And so this brings me to the last thing that I think Paul's metaphors teaches us, is that it's not about the vessel, it's about the contents, And so in my studies I discovered discovered that Corinth was actually renowned in the 8th century BC for its pottery. That they would export these magnificent pieces of pottery all over the Greek world and they they controlled the market at that time. And they were believed to have created certain painting techniques and, and designs and styles that became really popular during that era. However, in using this metaphor of a jar of clay, it doesn't seem like Paul is referring to some finely painted ceramic vase, but rather just an ordinary plain jar. And that's because our ordinariness accentuates the extraordinariness of the treasure that's within us. It accentuates this extraordinariness of God, because it's not about the vessel, it's about the content. And this was a relevant message to the Corinthians in Paul's time because they lived in a, a very wealthy and a very busy city that was uh, very much focused on outward appearance and achievement and doing well. Uh, and it's relevant to us today because I don't know about you, but in a society that's, that really prioritizes and emphasizes um, high performance and self-improvement and outward appearance and keeping up with the trends, It's really freeing, actually, to know that we don't have to engage in this kind of egocentric rat race because it's not about us, it's about him. It's about the one who dwells within us. That God has placed his treasure, Paul says, inside jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power comes from him, not from us. That our ordinariness accentuates the extraordinariness of God. And so you and I are the vessels of what our blind world needs. That in all our ordinariness and all our fragility and our our imperfection and our incompleteness, that God has designed you with a very specific purpose in mind, to carry his Holy Spirit, to carry the light of God, to carry the message of who he is and what he's done out into this world. And so this is what I think Paul is trying to communicate when he calls us jars of clay, is that this is the the design that God has had in mind. Like Matt said, we've all been given something, and our job is to go uh, and to shine and and to present that treasure to the world, not to take glory for ourselves, but to be reflectors of Jesus. And so as we come to the closing of our service, I want to read the last part of chapter 4, Um, Because I I have a sense that this could be relevant to some and, and, and hopefully encouraging as well. Starting in verse 16, Paul says, Do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so, Father, I want to thank you for the people in this room. I thank you that you have designed every single one of them, that you know even the smallest and the finest of details about them, because you are the great potter, and we are clay, and you have shaped us with a specific design in mind, and you have placed this treasure inside of us, And it seems bizarre that you would use jars of clay, that would use us and all all our inability and our imperfections and and faults, that you would choose to use us to minister to a blind world. But you do. And it's so that you get all the glory that you so deserve. And So I pray that you would, that we wouldn't get caught up in making things about ourselves, that we wouldn't be uh, so concerned on, oh, I can't until I'm like this or until I know this or know that but just in the state that we are, God, that you would use us, Father, to bring light, to reveal um, the truth of who you are, to remove that veil and the blindness that is upon the world, Lord. And so, Father, I pray for the people in this room, Lord, for maybe those that are feeling discouraged, that they wouldn't lose heart, Lord, that even though outwardly we're wasting away, that's the reality, that our bodies are temporary. But what's within us, Father, our spirits is being renewed day by day. And so I pray as we spend time with you, as we read our word, as we seek you and and pray and speak to you, Father, that we would be renewed from the inside out, God. And help us to, to fix our eyes upon you, to fix our eyes on what is eternal and what is unseen, rather than being distracted with all the different things that the world has to offer, God. Help us to seek you first, as Matthew says, to seek you first for that you would be our our, our priority God, our first and foremost Father. And so I pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Use these people as jars of clay, Father, that you have placed your treasure inside so that you would receive the glory, that the power would be recognized as coming from you and not from us. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Hey, let's uh, finish with, I think we had one last song, did we? Let's close with a song, and then we've got tea and coffee, and if you need prayer or anything like that, please come and grab us afterwards. We'd love to pray with you. Otherwise, let's close and worship.